This podcast channel is about you, successful international entrepreneurs, successful expats, successful investors, sponsored by HCJ Contacts. Okay, my name is Darren Joseph from HEJ.Tax. We're a team that seeks to demystify the sometimes confusing world of cross-border taxation. And today we have the honor and the privilege of joining us, Edward Gordon. Edward, could you please introduce yourself? Sure. I'm Edward Gordon. I own a company called Preservation Capital Partners. Uh, we've been doing tax structure work. Uh, for over 30 years, both for U.S. domestic and for non-U.S. Uh, families uh, and entrepreneurs, some actors, some athletes, but not a whole lot, mostly entrepreneurs and wealthy families. Fantastic. And, uh, sorry, finish. Okay. Hold and, on. To, and today we're going to talk about an often misunderstood concept called PPLIs. Please, could you explain to us in in layman's terms exactly what is a PPLI? Sure. So um, PPLI is nothing more than a cash value life insurance policy. So if I start from the beginning, most people are aware of traditional retail insurance product. So whole life or regular universal life. And in those insurance contracts, somebody puts dollars in an outlay or premium. The insurance company takes out a pound of flesh for their fee structure, commissions, and so on. And after that, what's left over falls into a bucket called cash value. And cash value is uh, is exempt from current taxation, so grows tax-free. It can be borrowed out tax-free. And when the insured dies, the death benefit of the policy is paid tax-free to the beneficiary. So those are really great attributes. In the retail product, the insurance company invests that money in their general account. And we care about the credit ratings of those insurance companies, because if the money's invested in the insurance company's general account, it's subject to the insurance company's creditors. So if New York Life or Guardian or Northwestern Mutual went out of business, your cash value is subject to their creditors. And when the money is invested in their general account, typically the insurance companies investing in very conservative investments, bonds, mortgages, fixed income instruments, nothing really overly sexy. It's because they're looking to drive the quality and the stability of their product. There's another product that insurance companies have on the retail side called variable life. In variable life, the cash value is not invested in the general account. The cash value is invested in other assets. For instance, mutual funds or uh, or ETFs or other investments that are on the insurance company's platform. Mm -hmm. Typically overpriced and underperforming, and usually the insurance company owns mm -hmm. those investments. So I think Pacific Life owns, you know, uh, Mutual fund company, New York Life, owns mainstay funds and Guardian owns Park Avenue Securities and so on. Um, nice, but wealthy people can do things that other people can't. Um, and that brings us to the private placement variable life. And one thing I should bring up before that, because the assets are not held in the general account of the insurance company, and they're held in what's known as segregated accounts, or sometimes known as protected cell accounts, the cash value of a variable life policy is not subject to the creditors of the insurance company. 
That's pretty incredible when you think about it. So the insurance company is really acting as more of an administrator in a variable life policy. So the insurance company puts together a contract. They may own the risk portion, the death benefit mm-hmm. piece, or they may lay that off to Munich Re, Genry, or Swiss Re, or one of the reinsurers. Mm-hmm. And they're not managing the cash value. So they're really just acting as a administrator. Since wealthy people can do things that other people can't, the institutional world came out with a product that was known as variable life. And since the only investors are allowed to invest in it are, incre- are accredited investors, the government said that you must do this as a private placement. Mm-hmm. So adopting the word of using you know, other Wall Street scenarios where they're only available to accredited investors or qualified purchasers. In those environments, we come, we come in two flavors. One, the investments of the insurance policy can go to a list of insurance dedicated funds that are on the insurance company's platform. So just like the retail product without the fee structure, without the, you know, it's the minimum cost structure with sexier investments. Mm -hmm. So you may be able to buy uh, select investments like Millennium Hedge Fund or Golub Capital or much sexier investments that are on the insurance company's platform. Mm -hmm. The other model of that is where we spend most of our time, which is called the separate managed account model. Mm -hmm. When I first started in the business, it was called the asset allocator model. Mm -hmm. And that's where the insurance company lets you choose a manager and that manager goes out in the world and can invest the funds of the policy. Now, again, the great advantage of these policies is that cash value grows entirely free of taxation. Mm-hmm. Done, depending on the design of it, money can be borrowed out of the policy mm-hmm. tax-free. And upon the death of the insured, all of those assets are paid in cash or in kind as death benefit. Mm-hmm. To use the wrong terminology with the same result, if I have assets in my policy, mm-hmm. upon the death of the insured, mm-hmm. they're paid to the beneficiary at then current market value tax-free, you and I would say that is a step-up in basis. Mm-hmm. Now, it's not really a step-up in basis. It's death benefit under Section 101 of the tax code, but it's the same mm-hmm. concept. Mm-hmm. So. If you can get the cost structure down on these policies to be a de minimis level mm-hmm. and you're driving cash value return, you can end up with large amounts of tax-free death benefit far in excess of what you could buy on a traditional life policy. Mm-hmm. You'll, In essence, if you think that your investments can beat the way the insurance company would have invested the money, then this is a much better product. And since most people we work with believe that, mm-hmm. you know, private equity and credit investments and other investments that are tax inefficient otherwise are better investments inside of these vehicles. Mm-hmm. Um, I do uh, have that's a, a nice, sorry, that's a nice segue as well, because up until this point, we've kind of been saying cash, but other assets can be folded into this structure, right? Sure. Sure. Okay. So let, let's go over the two rules. Because okay. when you boil this down, there's only two rules when it comes to mm-hmm. the design of these products. Okay. One rule is the, the diversification testing. Mm-hmm. And the diversification testing takes place after the, the first quarter, after the first year, your mm-hmm. policy must meet requirements on the last day of each quarter following the first year. Mm-hmm. What are those rules? A little confusing. No one asset could be worth more than 55% of the entirety. Mm-hmm. No two assets combined would be 70%. Mm-hmm. Three assets, 84 assets, 90. Wow, that's very specific. But there's exceptions. Yeah. But there's all sorts of exceptions. Right. I'll, give you, I'll give you one exception. Okay. If one of your assets got really pregnant, Mm -hmm. swelled in value, Mm -hmm. 
you could clearly be out of diversification on market value. Mm -hmm. But there's an alternative test called the market fluctuation rule. Mm -hmm. And it says that I can value the assets at their cost basis for diversification. Okay. So for instance, if I put in $5 million into an insurance policy and uh, the asset allocator or the manager you know, invested a million dollars into five different assets, 20% each. I clearly meet my diversification. Mm -hmm. And, you know, some quarter later, we find out that one of these investments really, really swelled in value. Mm -hmm. We're still diversified because of the market fluctuation rule. Otherwise, you could not have fixed assets inside of these products. Exactly. You know, yeah. you'd only, you, you, would you would be really subject to only assets that the manager could liquidate prior to the end of the quarter to reshuffle the deck. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, so that's one. Two, another uh, weird exception. If real estate or a real estate entity makes up more than 80% of the value of the contract, you actually have 60 months to meet the diversification test, not 12. Mm -hmm. Just an odd rule. Mm -hmm. And again, there's all sorts of weird rules. For instance, U.S. treasuries or any government guaranteed asset counts as a diversified portfolio by its nature. Mm. So I, it's funny, I was reading, you know, getting really geeky. I had to read something on diversification the other day and I came across a private letter ruling that said, if you had $250,000 in a CD and the CD was FDIC guaranteed, Mm -hmm. That two hundred and fifty thousand dollars counts as a diversified portfolio of assets. Mm -hmm. It meets the exception of a government mm -hmm. guaranteed security. Okay. So right now we keep we have a lot of money sitting in U.S. Treasuries or U.S. Treasury money market accounts, where mm -hmm. the sole investment are U.S. Treasuries. Mm -hmm. So interesting. You so know, you mentioned. You mentioned two rules. So the first one is the diversification piece. What's this, what's the second? Yeah. So, so the diversification test is reported to the insurance company after the mm -hmm. last day of each quarter. And just so you know, you mm -hmm. don't need to be diversified the day before, only on the mm -hmm. day of the last day. So you may have a portfolio mm -hmm. that has a high concentration in a liquid in a, in a one position, mm -hmm. and then the manager may the day before the end of the quarter look to diversify and then go back to it afterwards. So the, right. there's a mark, it's the last day yeah. of each calendar. Good. Okay. Yeah. That is a that is something that is seen and reported. And if mm -hmm. you screw it up, you potentially can screw up the tax nature of a life insurance contract. Mm -hmm. The other rule, which is hard to see, but I think is more important because it's where the IRS will really scrutinize these policies. Mm. And there's really only one real court case on this rule. And that's the rule of investor control or owner control. Right. Yeah. And, and what it says is that the owner of the insurance policy mm -hmm. may not dictate what is specifically bought and sold on a granular regular basis. Mm -hmm. So my client can tell me as mm -hmm. manager, mm -hmm. I want to buy things that are kosher, Sharia compliant, don't hold firearms over some holiday. That's fine. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. They can't say go buy Apple stock. Right. And I don't even yeah. and I don't even think that my client should be able to suggest to me, here are 10 things that would be really good for my policy. You choose which one you want and how much. Mm -hmm. I think to the letter of the law, that's probably okay, but I think optically. Mm -hmm. The client's just better off giving an overall philosophy and we go out mm -hmm. and, you know, open up an account at Goldman Sachs to manage the mm -hmm. equities and open up an account at somebody else and maybe be commodities and then go out and buy different private equity and subscribe to different deals. That's what we mm -hmm. do as a manager. Um, mm -hmm. It has an enormous amount of flexibility, mm -hmm. um, but since the rule of investor control is not statutory, it's judicial. Mm -hmm. A judge can one day decide that it's something different than what we think it is. Okay. There was a court case called the case of Jeffrey Weber. If you'd like, I wrote an article with a bunch of lawyers. It's mm -hmm. 
if you have trouble sleeping, it might be a good <laughs> article to try to read. Where was it published? Uh, 2016, 2017. Was it in like tax notes or where was it? A journal of Taxation. Journal of Taxation. Sure, I'm sure okay. everybody. Yeah. <laughs> um, so Jeffrey Jeffrey Weber had a private yeah. placement life policy owned by a grantor trust, which means that he, as grantor, mm -hmm. owned the policy for tax purposes. Mm -hmm. Important. Mm -hmm. And Jeffrey Weber had tens of thousands of emails directing his managers to what to buy and mm -hmm. sell on a granular, regular basis. And it went on for a very long period of time. Mm -hmm. And obviously nobody knew about it. Supposedly, uh, you know, let's just say Jeffrey ticked off somebody and they became a whistleblower mm -hmm. and sent the IRS a laundry list of things to look at. And this was one of them. Mm -hmm. And the IRS and the tax court rightfully held that during the existence of the direction of these emails and the manager, by the way, took a hundred percent of that direction and acted on it in accordance to the direction. Mm -hmm. Um, that you don't get the tax-free buildup of the insurance policy that you should have, and you owe the taxes you should have paid plus interest. Mm -hmm. There yeah. were no penalties yeah. mm -hmm. uh, in that case. I could tell you a million reasons why, but I don't know factually. Mm -hmm. um, I've worked with the two lawyers uh, that were involved in that case. There's only two people that I know that really were involved in a case of investor control. Mm -hmm. Everybody else is really a spectator thinking they know what they're talking about. Um, it, it is a rule where even Senator Grassley had asked um, the, the GAO to write a report on private placement life policies and their abuses. And it really came down to the example I gave. It just said, this is perfectly fine. The owner may not tell the manager to buy Apple stock. That is actually the example that was given in the GAO report. Mm -hmm. um, I've had clients send me pitch decks mm -hmm. and I just call them back and say, I'm sorry, mm -hmm. that's not an investment we can make in your contract. Yeah. I, I don't care if it was a winning lottery ticket. <laughs> it's just, it, it's just yeah. you know, it, it's not just them that I'm worried about, it's my reputational risk, it's mm -hmm. the industry. I don't want, mm -hmm. I don't want to ruin this. And it has other real advantages. So in essence, the cash value portion of the insurance policy is an LLC. Mm -hmm. That LLC has a manager. Mm -hmm. Bolted to the top of that LLC is a certain amount of death benefit required under the law to all call right. it insurance. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And you have an insurance company that bolts it all together and provides the administration and the contract. Mm -hmm. So Bob's insurance company doesn't manage the assets. Manager does. Mm -hmm. Bob's insurance company really doesn't reserve for any of the risk because mm -hmm. the death benefit piece is bought through Munich Re, Swiss Re, Gen Re, Canada, mm -hmm. you know, there's a million reinsurers. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And each quarter, Bob calls the manager and says, how much is in the policy? Do you meet diversification? Mm -hmm. Show it to me. Mm -hmm. And then Bob writes back and says, here are Bob's fees, the, mm -hmm. what they call an m and &E. And mm -hmm. here's the cost of the death benefit this quarter that goes to Munich or or uh, Genry or one of the reinsurers. Mm -hmm. And the manager wires the money to the insurance company to pay Bob's fee and the reinsurance fee. And then you don't hear from them until the next quarter. Okay. So this and is, this is quite this is quite fascinating. So, you know, obviously somebody listening to this, uh, you know, so many lights are going off. What are the, I mean, generally speaking, we can probably dive into it later on, but generally speaking, what are the the purposes or the variety of, uh, you know, applications for a structure like this? There, there are a lot. Um, mm -hmm. One is, is obviously um, it provides death benefit to uh, typically a trust and estate planning. Mm -hmm. Life insurance by nature has asset protection value, 99% um, of what we do is owned by trust. So that has its own asset protection nature as well. So, mm -hmm. but for, um, for investing purposes, just like in the retail variable life policy, you'll find, you know, companies have the accumulator six and the, mm -hmm. you know, whatever, 
And you're looking this to, to drive cash value rate of return, which ultimately pushes up the, the, the value of death benefit. Mm -hmm. And you can own assets in there that normally would have been tax inefficient had you held them in your own name mm -hmm. or in a, in a, or I call a naked trust, um, the way the trust would have taxation. Mm -hmm. Here, you could, the insurance policy can invest in those assets, like, like a, I'll give you, for instance, a credit investment, which is all the rage right now. So we go out, we buy these credit investments, and they produce a 12% coupon return. And if you live in a high tax area, you may be paying up to 50% of that in taxes. Now you have a 6% rate of return when you could buy treasuries at five. That's not such a good deal. Mm -hmm. But if you are in a life insurance structure and the cost of that structure on the high end is let's say 1%, mm -hmm. so now you're earning 12%, you're paying 1% to the insurance company and the reinsurer, and you're compounding at 11. Mm -hmm. Well, all of a sudden, that's a game changer. So that might be a good investment for the type of policy you have, although you have to assess risk, right? Mm -hmm. um, for US persons, mm -hmm. this works really well for exactly those reasons. For non-US persons that normally could be subject to US taxation, whether they're it's pre-immigration planning or just a, a non-US taxpayer who wants to invest in certain US asset classes that are subject to US taxation. Mm -hmm. We use these insurance policies or annuities, mm -hmm. which is really just the insurance policy without the death benefit, mm -hmm. to hold these portfolios of assets. So I was just in a conference in Guatemala mm -hmm. with a number of families that are most of them were more than 100-year-old family businesses in Latin mm -hmm. America. Mm -hmm. And if you look around the world as to where you want to own assets, there's not a lot of countries where great wealth can hold great, you know, large amounts of investments. A lot of people do want to invest in the U.S. Mm -hmm. A lot of people don't want to be subject to U.S. taxation because you could be a U.S. taxpayer without being a citizen. Mm -hmm. um, and so this is a neat way to hold assets so they're not subject to U.S. tax, especially for somebody who may have their children that go to college here, fall in love with somebody and live here, and maybe they're going to inherit non-U.S. you know, new, they're going to inherit assets from the non-U.S. parent. These are ways of holding assets in policies, in trust to make those transactions far more efficient from a tax perspective. So I'm thinking in terms of just general estate planning, wealth management, retirement planning, charitable giving, pre-immigration planning, uh, you know, probably into and out of the U.S., depending on what you're trying to do and what your circumstances are. And something else popped into my head. I mean, that's the obvious stuff, but something else popped into my head. I, I'm going to run it past you. We know that I think by the end of 2025, all the the job the the benefits from President Trump's tax cut and jobs act they would expire, and you know the the lifetime exemption which is I don't know somewhere between twelve and thirteen million would go down to I don't know maybe five million but a lot less than that. Is this an opportunity? I mean we don't know what's going to happen. Anything can happen, but it's, let's assume it expires. Is this a like a, a strategic opportunity to transfer to gift assets into the structure? Absolutely. And, yeah. Absolutely. We've had this several times in my 30 years where the, yeah. the, the, the threat of that exemption amount dropping. So we had mm -hmm. lots of clients do things like even temporarily, like yeah. lend money to the trust. And mm -hmm. the day before, you know, if the if the exemption amount doesn't change, mm -hmm. then they make, at that point, they forgive the loan, making mm -hmm. a gift. Mm -hmm. And if it, if it does, if, 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 I'm sorry, if it, if it doesn't drop, then well, they make the gift, but either way, it gives them the flexibility of either pulling the money back or, yeah. or leaving it there. But mm -hmm. I, I look at this product as in just an insulating layer around the portfolio of assets mm -hmm. 
to make taxation more efficiently. And for the vast majority of our clients, this is a pocket of money that's never going to be touched. So it really just becomes, a, at the end of the day, death benefit, which is paid tax-free, which can be used to pay estate taxes, all sorts of other things. It just makes things more efficient. And then I have other clients that utilize this just to, you know, I'll give you a prime example. Large family has great wealth. They have a significant amount of money sitting in a grantor trust. Mm-hmm. And grandpa is paying the taxes on all of this investment return that creates taxable noise. Mm-hmm. And that's a nice idea because grandpa paying the taxes on his grandchildren's trust is not a gift. Mm-hmm. But I would much rather see grandpa give all that money away, these paying in taxes to charity, if he mm-hmm. so desires to give it away, mm-hmm. than give it to the government. Mm-hmm. So by going to the trustee and having the trustee acquire a private placement variable life policy, mm-hmm. we put all those assets into the policy as a premium. And on an ongoing basis now, there's no taxation. Mm-hmm. Grandpa is not depleting his estate by the taxes being paid on the family trust. He could mm-hmm. choose to keep the money, give it away, or live like a rock star. Mm-hmm. Um, and then mm-hmm. let's assume grandpa or grandma was the insured. Mm-hmm. When they pass, all of the assets of the trust get a step up in basis, mm-hmm. quote unquote. Mm-hmm. It's death benefit under 101 of the code. There's no other place in the tax code where an asset held outside of a taxable estate, it's a reset in its basis mm-hmm. the way we could do this with life insurance. Mm-hmm. Now that death benefit could be used as traditional death benefit to pay estate taxes. It could be done just to hold assets. There's a million, million different things, but you're creating a far greater efficient transaction by doing this. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's so, so many uses. All right. So, I mean, Clearly, it it is it could be a solvability. I mean, it it would address so many use cases. But could you speak to what it's not good for? What, it's what not is good. It? It's not for a client who's an egomaniacal, narcissistic sociopath <laughs> that has to control every aspect of what's going on. Because yeah. I will I will tell you, Senator mm-hmm. Wyden has already is, is looking once again into private placement insurance being a area where wealthy people are using this as a device to avoid taxes. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think there's anything they could do about it. It's it's just life insurance. It's just regular mm-hmm. variable life made for mm-hmm. accredited investors. So mm-hmm. it's the it's just institutionally priced mm-hmm. and with fle- more flexible investments than the retail product. I don't know where, you know, it's the same section of the code. It's not like there's, the, it's not like there's PPLI a is a different section yeah. of the code. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I would avoid an overt um, exercise of of discretion over what those investments are. I think that's really the pinch in the hourglass. Mm-hmm. So who your client is and their disposition, it may not be for everybody. Uh, I don't think this is for investments that are going to earn less than a 5% rate of return. I think that and I don't think it's really for investments that that are tax efficient. Mm-hmm. So you're not going to buy municipal bonds and hold them to maturity inside of a policy. It, mm-hmm. It's it's you're paying a a fee for the cost of death benefit and the insurance company's fee. And if you're not offsetting taxes for that, I, I don't know if it's if it's worth doing. Right. And and so, okay, so we know it works obviously in the U.S. and therefore chances are it's working in other common law jurisdictions. But what about civil law jurisdictions? Because you mentioned you do a lot of work in Latin America. Are those jurisdictions okay with it? Some. So, so it, it, it really depends. Like, like right. uh, yeah. and it changes. So I, I'm, mm-hmm. I haven't done anything in uh, Argentina, but my understanding mm-hmm. is that and it was somebody from Argentina is an Argentinian or Argentine. I never got that right. Uh, I, I believe that they have a law that says they can't buy an insurance contract that's not issued by a company out of Argentina. Argentina, right. 
And again, I at one point I paid a lawyer to put together a grid for me from most mm -hmm. countries as to what you know. Can you do yeah. this? What are the rules? Mm -hmm. How to do this? It is ever changing. Mm -hmm. So I know in Uruguay you can because I've done it. Uh, mm -hmm. Spain more, far more problematic. Spain does not recognize trust, and they do not recognize the cash value of insurance being not subject to Spanish taxes. So uh, there's a lawyer that I utilize at Baker McKenzie, a couple mm -hmm. of lawyers that I use at Withers. These are big global tax firms. There's others. Mm -hmm. uh, and they're kind of my go-to people because they're more up on it than I am. I couldn't possibly be up on every country. But mm -hmm. the Philippines, Hong Kong, Australia, um, easy, easy. Mm -hmm. not, not, it, it, they all have a certain recognition of insurance. And the U.S. typically has a treaty with them that mm -hmm. uh, if, for instance, if you have a Bermuda insurance policy, mm -hmm. uh, Bermuda has a treaty with the U.S. that says if you if you have an insurance policy that's under Section 77 of the U.S. Code and 817H, mm -hmm. we'll recognize it as a life insurance policy for all U.S. tax and compliance purposes. So, all right. So you need to pay attention to... Uh, the jurisdictions that are impacted, where the beneficiary is going to be exposed, where is the, you know, the, the grantor, the person who contributes to the policy, where do they sit, which jurisdictions do they touch? Uh, yeah. it, it, it could be, it could be nuanced. And yeah. you might even have to have a special type of policy. So mm -hmm. you, you may need to have a EU and US compliant life policy. Mm -hmm. So you may have, to have a what we call a dual compliant policy. And that really just mm -hmm. means how much death benefit is needed. You usually mm -hmm. the US requires more than most. Um, it, that's just plumbing. But the real, mm -hmm. when we do planning, we look at the situation. What's the tax residency of the grantor? What's the tax residency of the trust? What's the tax residency of the mm -hmm. beneficiaries? Mm -hmm. What are the rules? Uh, how do we do this? And I'm mm -hmm. the first person to tell somebody no. Right, gotcha. All right, so let, let's look at the, I mean, the advantages are clearly obvious. We're, I mean, tax efficiency, we don't need to talk about that, but the asset protection as well, because once it's locked in, you know, no one, the creditor would find it quite hard to access it. And then the, just the whole, you know, providing for that next generation, that, that estate planning, it seems so comprehensive. But of course, as you pointed out, the limitation is a control. So how does it stack up, let's say, to trusts and foundations? Is it is that a conversation you have with clients? Like, do they say, okay, well, I know there's a PPLI, but compare that to a trust if it's a common law jurisdiction, or if you're dealing with someone in Latin America, how does it stand against a foundation? Is that something you have to discuss with them? I don't really get into the foundation conversation much. Okay. We really talk about, you know, well, if you just do the trust, mm -hmm. again, I call it trust without PPLI in it, a naked mm -hmm. trust. Mm -hmm. The question is, is what would be the advantage of, instead of the assets being in the naked trust, that the trustee, it lines the trust with this insurance contract. What are the advantages of doing that? What's the cost and what's the cost to that? Yeah. Uh, typically, there's an enormous advantage because it creates another layer of protection for asset protection purposes. Mm -hmm. It also creates another layer for taxation purposes. Mm -hmm. um, and again, you'd be hard pressed to find cases where the insurance policy wasn't respected. Mm -hmm. There are, look, there are some abusive situations out there. There's a very large case where a Swiss firm was mm -hmm. taking monies that were never declared as U.S. In taxable investments, where the mm -hmm. U.S. taxpayers were literally shifting them overseas not mm -hmm. to pay taxes. And someone had the bright idea of saying, well, instead of declaring them, mm -hmm. shove them all into life insurance and have it paid as a death benefit tax-free back yeah. to the U.S. Mm -hmm. Well, someone blew the whistle on that and the insurance company ended up paying an enormous fine. But that mm -hmm. really had nothing to do with the insurance contract. Mm -hmm. It had to do with you know, hiding U.S. taxpayers' money that should have been taxed and declared mm -hmm. and trying to figure out a way of getting it back tax-free. The policy mm -hmm. still worked. Mm -hmm. It's a plan. And look, there's a lot of bad actors out there, and we see them a lot. Mm -hmm. we, yeah. really, we really do. Okay. So in terms of, I guess that that's a nice, uh, again, a nice segue into 
the, you know, the, the risk, the risk, uh, as you said, if somebody is that egomaniacal want to be controlled. And, you know, it, it, it just simply won't work. But then you also mentioned 1%. So there's a cost, right? There's a, a cost to, to setting up and running this structure. Uh, could you talk to that? I mean, and you also mentioned the, the risk of depending on what jurisdictions, beneficiaries or whatever exposed to. Uh, it could be tax transparent and it may be taxable, but, you know, that, you know, that that could be managed using the right uh, legal professionals in, in jurisdictions and stuff like that. But I guess the, the one thing that seems to be difficult to mitigate is the, the cost of operating the structure. Can you comment on that? Yeah, so in essence, there's three fees in the insurance policy. So mm -hmm. well, let's start here. There's okay. fees to set it up on the legal end. There may be some valuation, there's some gifting, there's, there's, mm -hmm. What I call outside the policy plumbing. Mm -hmm. So there's professional fees that are done typically, mm -hmm. but the policy itself has three components to it. Mm -hmm. The three components are the insurance company's M&E, mm -hmm. management and expense. Mm -hmm. There's the cost of the death benefit, which goes out to Munich Re, Swiss Re, Genry. Mm -hmm. And then there's a fee that goes to that are is attributable to the investments. Mm -hmm. I don't really count the fee that it's attributable to investments as a real fee because the client mm -hmm. would have had those fees had the policy not existed. Mm -hmm. Right? I mean, still, if you had a if you had money over at a hedge fund, they're going to charge you two and twenty, maybe. Well, mm -hmm. they're going to charge the policy two and twenty. So it's mm -hmm. so let's Same. just talk about the, the two fees that are in the insurance policy. The insurance companies M&E and mm -hmm. the death benefit cost that goes to the reinsurer. Mm -hmm. Those fees, depending on how you design it, can range anywhere between 60 to 115 basis points. Mm -hmm. So between a little more than a half a percent upwards to over a percent. And, and there's, there's a reason for the range. Mm -hmm. One is the design. Mm -hmm. So you can design an insurance policy that may be really efficient from a cost perspective, but inefficient from maybe your ability to access your cash value. Mm -hmm. um, you may make it slightly more efficient from a cost perspective, but if you borrow money out of the policy, it won't be tax-free, it'll be taxable. So for the client who says, I'll never borrow my money, I have yeah. one design mm -hmm. from the client who says, well, I don't really have a need to borrow, but I want to mm -hmm. be able to borrow it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, you'll pay an ordinary income tax on your borrowing, mm -hmm. but the mm -hmm. cost of the contract will be cheaper. Mm -hmm. And then the client who says, no, no, I want full rights to my cash value and I don't want to pay tax on my borrowing. Mm -hmm. That's the third regime. And then there's also different designs that we get involved in. I've done group insurance policies where my client's not the insured. We insure thousands of people's lives and we own the cash value. Mm -hmm. So if you think of, I'm from New York, so we think about everything in the form of pizza. The, the sauce and the cheese is mm -hmm. your cash value. Yeah. And the death benefit piece is the crust. And when an employee dies, you get back one one thousandth of your cash value tax free. Mm -hmm. And the employee or the company gets their piece of the crust that you paid for. Mm -hmm. Those policies are more expensive. Mm -hmm. However, I could deploy far more money into these policies than I could on a single life mm -hmm. and still have it compliant with able to borrow my money tax free. Okay. So. Gotcha. One of the other cost structures that against my own um, interest mm -hmm. we do and we mandate was two things. One is we only work with insurance companies that will guarantee their cost structure, meaning that it is scheduled in the mm -hmm. contract and cannot be changed. Right. Yeah. yeah, yeah. No I don't, need to see, I don't <laughs> need to see some fine print that says uh, at any time the insurance company has the sole discretion to change the M&E fee. It's not going to go down. Mm -hmm. I assure you it's not going to go down. Mm -hmm. And it, it's nothing more than the frog in the boiling water where they keep yeah. on creeping that up until the guy 
he doesn't realize that he's boiling to death. Yeah. Um, yeah. So we're, we're, we're sticklers about that. <laughs> the second thing is on the contracts that we work with clients on, when monies are borrowed out of the insurance contract, the insurance company's M&E fee goes to zero mm. the borrowed monies. Mm-hmm. And that's the larger part of the fee structure. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to make up numbers. Mm-hmm. Let's say the insurance company is charging 60 basis points for M&E and the mm-hmm. cost of the death benefit is another 25 basis points. Mm-hmm. So, 80, so that year, the cost was 85 basis points. If the client borrowed money out, the 60 basis point piece goes to zero. Mm-hmm. That makes it a far more efficient vehicle to do with what the client expects to do with it. Mm-hmm. I, I like that because the last thing you want to have happen is that the fees in the contract are so high mm-hmm. that when you borrowed money out, you may jeopardize the policy lapsing. Mm-hmm. And if you have a lapse on a policy with a loan, mm-hmm. you might have a very large taxable event. So by so keeping, bad. so when they borrow money out of the contract and you can keep mm-hmm. the cost structure really low, you have a much, much better chance of the policy never lapsing because whatever's left in the policy will be able to generate enough money to keep it in force. To cover right. right. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So you mentioned, so I'm wondering, of course, completely anonymize it, but then if you could speak to some experiences that you may have had in dealing with other jurisdictions. So I know you mentioned Latin America. Do you Have you had any experience structuring uh, policies for clients who are exposed to Europe or no? Yeah, I mean, and Europe's tough. Not every country yeah. in Europe has the same rules. I mean, as I said, Spain is is difficult. Yes, England, no is, England is not that easy. England is not that easy. Okay, so could you talk about how it works with US, UK? Just generally speaking. You know, so we, we, we were going to do a policy with a UK taxpayer mm-hmm. and we were going to have the policy deployed into US private equity. And it was just mm-hmm. a lot of questions as to whether the return on the private equity investments would be exempt from British taxes. Yeah. And we chose not uh, to do it. Right. Okay. So it didn't work. Is there any jurisdiction where it did work in, the, in Europe? Sure. I mean, I, I, oh. yeah. Switzerland uh, okay, is easy. Right. Like, mm-hmm. I mean, and they and they're the providers of a lot of these policies. So, mm-hmm. Italy, Luxembourg, uh, Israel. We have a lot of Israeli taxpayers mm-hmm. who like investing in U.S. real estate. Mm-hmm. And the way they had been doing it before was they were coming in as debt, so they weren't subject to U.S. tax because if they bought U.S. real estate, they're subject to U.S. taxation. So we make yeah. those investments through the PPLI policy. Mm-hmm. However, mm-hmm. on death, borrowing, mm-hmm. or surrender, if the beneficiary is an Israeli beneficiary, it's going to be yeah. there's a 25% tax on the gain in, mm-hmm. at the Israeli level. On the Israeli side, the US but is it, works, it, it works for US. Mm-hmm. But in that we've had clients that uh, were residents of the UAE. Mm-hmm. And they, oh, there's they, nothing there. Yeah, there's nothing there. So we, we actually yeah. don't use a life policy there. There we use, mm-hmm. a, in most cases, use an annuity. Mm-hmm. And because the, the annuity just does is it's the same product, except it doesn't have the death benefit components with one less fee, even though it's mm-hmm. de minimis. Right. Uh, um, and yeah. when they surrender the annuity, they don't pay taxes in the UAE. Yeah. Um, well, well, there are no taxes, generally speaking, in UAE. But uh, I guess if they were, that's assuming that they're not exposed to any other jurisdiction. Because correct. if they were U.S. exposed, then you're back where you started, right? Yeah. Yeah. So we, uh, again, every one of these countries is mm-hmm. case by case. We At one point, we did this for a number of Chinese nas- nationals. And mm-hmm. I think the last time we spoke, I think I told you that I kind of abandoned that a little bit because it, I found that it became far more difficult for Chinese nationals to actually get money out of China. Right. Yeah. So yeah, the, that, that, so the that money was that was already out, the money that was already out was already easy to work with, but yeah. Uh, mm. Yeah. Mm. What about uh, other parts of, what about other parts of Asia, like Hong Kong or Japan or oh, Hong, no? Hong Kong? This is, this is huge in Hong Kong, yeah. Taiwan, Singapore. Yeah. Um, 
as I said, Australia, I haven't worked with other jurisdictions, but um, I'll give you, for instance, it works very well in Brazil. Okay. So let's talk about Brazil. How, how Huge country, be? right? Lots yeah, of wealthy people. Absolutely. Yeah. So um, I actually have a presentation in Portuguese yeah. someplace. Oh, wow. So from a Brazilian point of view, because obviously we know it works for the U.S., right? But from a Brazilian tax point of view, it works as well. Yeah. For, as we speak, yes. Do they, can yeah. they change the yeah. rules? Yes. Yeah. I mean, certain mm -hmm. countries have changed the rules over time. I think I said that early Mexico years ago worked really well. And now there's you got to go through some hoops mm -hmm. and you can't have a, a Mexican beneficiary. I mean, there's lots of, again, each country. When yeah. we go there and say, yeah. here's a situation, mm -hmm. I then pick up the phone, I'll call you, I'll call the guys over at Withers, I'll call the guys over at Baker and say, mm -hmm. and I'll call everybody and say, how would you do this? Yeah. And if I don't get a consensus on how to do it, mm -hmm. no, no, nobody wants to be made famous. Mm -hmm. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's for sure. But let, okay. let me give you one okay. other aspect of yeah. PPLI. Yeah. Most policies are written in Switzerland, Luxembourg, Cayman, mm -hmm. Bermuda. It's just jurisdictions that that make it more efficient to do these. From the reinsurance perspective, yeah. Well, reinsurance or mm -hmm. just cost. If you do a, pol okay. a PPLI in the U.S., mm -hmm. you have you might have state premium tax. You have some other oh, issues. I see. Um, yeah. The if I was to own a PPLI company, let's say in the state in the states. Mm -hmm. I might have to put up ten thousand or twenty thousand or fifty thousand dollars per policy in reserves, even mm -hmm. though I may not hold any risk. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But if I did this in, you know, uh, one of the islands, uh, maybe I just put up a letter of credit of two hundred fifty thousand dollars, and I can write as much business as I want because a hundred percent of the risk is mm -hmm. reinsured. Mm -hmm. Makes it more efficient. Mm -hmm. uh, if you buy a policy. In the U.S. or in a U.S. territory, mm -hmm. like Puerto Rico, mm -hmm. a non-U.S. person does not have to worry about common reporting standards, CRS. So the U.S. Does, currently does not report to somebody's home country about an account in the U.S. If that foreign person invested in a U.S. in, in a um, PPLI contract in Bermuda, mm -hmm. Bermuda will Europe. report to the home country or Europe to that yeah. home country that this account exists. Mm -hmm. One that lends itself maybe to people that I don't want to do business with that are just purposely doing this to avoid CRS. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But there is a real use for it because if you've been to, um, especially a lot of Central American countries, you don't want people to know how wealthy you are and you don't want your government mm -hmm. to know what accounts you have. And it's mm -hmm. more of a privacy issue and a security issue than it is uh, mm. trying to hide, yeah. you know, bad money. Mm -hmm. But you know, look, there's yeah, a lot of there's a lot of background checks that get done both uh, in my office, mm -hmm. the insurance company, and the reinsurer mm -hmm. before we get the green light to go ahead. Do you deal with PPs of politically exposed persons? Generally speaking, um, we have. But in, in just in the U.S., not I have not, not dealt with any. Not outside, okay. No, right. and as you mentioned, that you know there are a lot of you know bad actors in the ecosystem, as there is in any ecosystem. How would how would you advise clients to go about selecting the right professional to deal with? Like, what would you look for? You look for somebody who has experience, and and my. Dad would always say that experience is best described as uh, great sailors aren't made in calm seas. When you do something long enough, you see all of the yeah. avenues of, mm -hmm. of of disaster. I mean, we've had mm -hmm. we've had situations where we've had explosive growth in contracts where we, you know, had to figure out how to get more death benefit when it wasn't available. Because you remember for every dollar you have a cash value, you need a certain amount of death benefit based on mm -hmm. age. It goes down every year, but you know, for instance, at age 75, you only need 5% more death benefit than cash value. Mm -hmm. Well, 
on $100 million, I could easily get $5 million of death benefit. Mm -hmm. But if you're 41 years old and you had $100 million in there, I may need $200 million of death benefit. <laughs> they may cost yeah. the same, yeah. but I may not be able to get that in the marketplace. So if my insurance contract explodes in value for my 45-year-old client, because the, some of the investments you know, did 10x, that's problematic. How do you deal with that? We've dealt with that over the years. I, you know, I don't think there's many situations we haven't seen. That's what you want to look for. You want to, you know, look, you're going to have surgery. I want the guy who's done this every day for 30 years, you know, with no problems. <laughs> not much fun. He or she's maybe not be fun at a party, but they yeah. really understand the granular part of it, not just the buzzwords. Absolutely. And if and someone I, wanted, if someone wanted to reach out and work with you and your team, what's the best way to do that? What's the best way to find you? Uh, Preservation Capital Partners. Uh, my email is egordon at prescapllc. You could provide that to anybody. Um, and I'll talk and discuss with anybody on how to do this and where to do this. I won't give away some of the secret sauce we have on making First some time. of these policies more efficient, but uh, it's a good business. It's been around a very long time. Yeah. You know, one thing we didn't discuss, mm -hmm. every major bank and corporation in America uses products like this mm. to hold their treasury assets in the form of a corporation. Mm -hmm. So by example, I don't know if this is true, but Walmart mm -hmm. is sitting on a lot of money in their treasury. They insure all of their employees on group life insurance policies, mm -hmm. shovel those treasury assets in this premium, hire someone to go manage those assets. Mm -hmm. And now that treasury assets are growing free of tax, we call that COLI, corporate owned life insurance. Mm -hmm. Banks have BOLI, bank owned life insurance. So banks mm -hmm. may take their non-loanable reserves, insure, you know, Bob in accounting and Hannah in accounts payable and all these executives where the bank is the owner and beneficiary of a policy. Yeah. And you could actually do a Google search of the term bully, put a mm -hmm. bank's name in it. And you might be able to find out how much cash value they hold on their books mm -hmm. on current and former employees' lives. And mm -hmm. I think the number will blow people away. It's another end of the business. And they could use either traditional policies mm -hmm. or variable life. Right. So the point oh, yeah, is that, the, that this stuff is tried and tested and no issues. That That's, you know, I think as long it. as you don't violate the investor control doctrine and you yeah. don't violate the diversification rules, mm -hmm. you're pretty much good to go. It's okay. this is just this is just variable life. Gotcha. Edward, thank you so much for sharing some of your time, your expertise. And yeah, deeply appreciate it. And we'll see you next time. Thank you for having okay. me. So if you're a six, seven, or eight-figure investor, entrepreneur, or business owner who needs a tailor-made solution from a qualified team of professionals, we can help you achieve the international lifestyle, the freedom, and even the tax savings you're looking for. Visit us at htj.tax and live that international life.